Well, good morning. Good to see your faces. You guys cleaned up pretty good. Um, it's, a, it's good to be in the house of God. It's, um, it's the only place on earth that you're going to hear something from that's not science-based or news-based or fake media or whatever. And so we come and uh, we're privileged to sit under the Word of God. And I, I feel like uh, this particular topic, I think, wow, um, I'm just a regular Joe trying to figure out life as it is. And here we are coming to, to one of these topics that is just immense, enormous. Last week we were talking about the comforting insights of the rapture. And I'm, I'm afraid I bit off more than I can chew today when we talk about the disturbing insights of the rapture. As we, uh, as we get into this topic, uh, be gracious to me. Don't throw a shoe at me because I'm going to open up some things that uh, I won't be able to answer. And, uh, but I invite you to struggle with me in, in trying to figure out these things. But I want to come back to that, that thought that, that God is imp- increasing your faith. He wants you to have an understanding of who he is and what he's doing. And we're doing so by listening to the Apostle Paul. As Paul's going through the New Testament, we're following him. And everywhere he would go, he would teach some of these things. Uh, I'm not saying, I'm trying to interpret all of Paul's teaching, but I understand some of them. And you have been exposed to them. And I'm certain that when you get into these things, there are some things that are really disturbing to you. Peter said is about Paul, some of his writings are difficult to understand. So as we get into this one, I want to talk uh, immediately just to tell you that there are five things that disturb me, and then we'll get into the, 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 to the content. But the idea is that disturbs me is that we're living in a day and age where the gospel message is being subverted and changed, distorted, that sometimes our focus that is supposed to be Worship and hopeful and encouraging when it comes to the topic of uh, of the second coming of Christ and the end times it's supposed to be a wonderful time and yet Satan somehow has this unusual ability to destroy this joy and and turn this into a mess and confusing that people end up not really fully experience, experiencing what God really wants us to that disturbs me uh, we are in a fallen world, and so a lot of people don't understand the gospel good news. And as a result of that, they remain hopeless and helpless. Um, the second thing is that when you get into topics like this and eschatology and end times, it's so easy for people to become a, what I call a Johnny One Note. There's, there's one issue, and you focus on this, and, and you become so focused on what's going on in Israel right now or the blood moons or something that, that you get zealous and, and uh, excited about the end times in a way that isn't kind of healthy. And so Paul would say to the Romans that you can have zeal and not have knowledge. And so there are people who get very emotional with the sensationalism and that's kind of disturbing because it substitutes for the real work of the community of Christ growing together. Paul would say also in Second Thess, as Allison read, Now we request you, brethren, 
with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with to him that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it was from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come and that was the issue in Thessalonians they thought He's here. We missed it. We, you know, Christ came and we weren't included. And Paul says, no, no, no. I'm still here. <laughs> I'm, I'm still here. You're not, don't worry, folks. But he was concerned about what other people understood because they would get emotionally caught off guard. The third thing is, boy, just in America today, uh, it disturbs me that we have so little patience and so little compassion as we listen to people, as we interact with people. We need to listen and learn to enter into discussions respectfully, humbly and honestly, especially when you get into issues of the Bible, especially having that gentle answer for people who don't know anything about the Bible. So I'm stealing this next sentence from Cairo's ministries. You've heard me say before, it's listen, listen, love, love. Our, our position is you... As you engage in being other-centered, you really learn how to listen, listen, love, love. And I would throw in one more. You want to learn, learn. That you can listen and uh, love, and then you can really engage in a way that you understand where people are coming from. That's such a need. Because Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, that a plan in the heart of a man like the thoughts in the heart of a man, the thinking, the belief, the faith, whatever it is, the hope is deep inside your soul. And it takes a certain disposition to listen, to draw out what people really understand and what they really think. And we'll talk about that. There's, there's another thing is, that's disturbing is that sometimes as Christians we just don't reflect or meditate on what we think. Uh, if you are depending upon me to be the only one influencing your thinking, um, you're done for it. You, you, you need more than me. You need the whole body of Christ. You need the whole realm of, of teaching that's out there because don't rely on one person. You, you need to really dig in and, and learn and, and be proactive in your learning. But so often when Christians remain uninformed about their beliefs, when they're in conversations, they can't explain it to other people. And that's disturbing because we've got the best news on earth. And yet the main thing is when you come to this topic and you talk about the rapture and the second coming and the end of times, there are a whole lot of people that have no idea what's coming up. And therefore, if we're not prepared to communicate, we still have a lost world. And every generation will go through this. And so my, my desire is to, again, prepare, equip, teach, instruct, like Paul would say, as he would say, these are things that you can't come up with. These are not your ideas, and so you don't have to defend them. But your job as a, as a believer is to really embrace them, engage them in a way that you can explain them, one, to yourself, and then two, how to incorporate that in your relationship so that you live out the gospel. 
Well, as I begin this, I want to tell you about a book that I used as my textbook in Japan, one of the textbooks. It's called Polite Fictions. Polite Fictions and Collisions is the new uh, revised version, but the subtitle is Why Japanese and Americans Seem So Rude to Each Other. And it's a great little book. It's really a gold mine. But the main idea that Nancy Sakamoto and her husband, Shio, they explore in this book is the idea that, that people, when they encounter each other, uh, they do so against some kind of background, some kind of, some kind of uh, assumptive world that they are familiar with, but they have a shared experience. And it's interesting that in those assumptions, sometimes they include things which are known by everybody to be false. And, and you, uh, you don't address it, you just overlook it and go on. And you get, kind of pretend that, you know, you know. It just, so there's a, there's a politeness when you come to these conversations. Now, you know this, that, that sometimes at weddings, you're thinking to yourself, you know, why did she marry that guy? That's not the right guy for her. And so you don't say that at a wedding. Or at a funeral, you go, oh, I don't know. He's up there in that bass boat fishing. I don't know where they got that idea, but he's not there. You don't, but you don't bring that up. You don't bring that up at that point. So you just, you don't talk about politics. You don't talk about taxes. You certainly don't talk about money. But in America, our assumption is it's your world. It's private. It's independent. And people should leave you alone. Don't call me. I'll call you. And I'm not going to call you. <laughs> but there are things that just are not discussed. Now, this, this is really true for me because I, I saw this firsthand in Japan because in Japan, when you go to meet somebody, there's a way, an understanding how they meet. And the understanding is in Japanese society, it is a vertical society. And therefore, when people bow, what we don't see, I'm going to point your attention here, what you don't see is that the... These two men meeting on a bridge, uh, crossing into a business section of Tokyo, they meet on the bridge and notice, notice the bowing position, that one man is a little lower than the other because there is something going on in that Japanese bow that we have no idea. But... If two people meet, they don't know how to relate to each other. So at the bow, there is an establishment of a pecking order. So you will find people bowing. No, no, I'm, you're higher than I am. No, you're older than I am. But you're smarter than I am. And no, you're richer than I am. And so you're social class. And so you'll, you'll find people actually bowing three or four times to find out, finally, it's, okay, I know how to relate to you now. Because that's the pecking order. There's a, there's a hierarchy in Japan. And you don't talk about money here in the United States, but it's not unusual in the introduction to say, well, um, uh, my name is you know, Sakamoto, and 
and um, I'm with this such and such a company, and this is my position, and how much money do you earn? So in a conversation, not too, it's not uncommon to find people talking about their salaries. Uh, we would never do that. But there's a polite fiction that we don't, they do, and they understand that, and we don't. So when somebody comes and says something that's of a different world, we go, huh? You're like, you got to be, you're rude. Well, this happened all the time. I saw this all the time, especially at conferences or in a meeting. Um, this is a standard practice for the Japanese. I'm going to use it this morning. But you'll see an expert, a scientist, a researcher will begin to talk. He's a, he may be famous, he may be not famous, but every time somebody is going to give a talk, they say something like this. My information I'm bringing to you really isn't worth much. I'm not very smart, and I don't really know what I'm talking about. Therefore, you know, you're here, you're going to suffer because you have to listen to me. And uh, I will do my best to try to make this clear, but I'm just really nothing to really take seriously. So, and so there's a self-deprecation. And you think, oh, that guy's a loser. He's not. Why well, listen to him? He doesn't know what he's talking about. So, and, and, but it's the way the Japanese honor to put you in a position to say you really are invited in. He may be a, an expert, but <clears throat> often they will say just to not be proud. For Americans, we want to be confident. We want to have the right answer. We want, to be, we want to know what we're talking about. We want people to know that we know what we're talking about. So we'll tell you so that you recognize and give me credit for knowing what I'm talking about. Well, there's no other field I think I know less about. So please forgive me my humble apologies for beginning to tell you about eschatology. Because this is not an area of my strength. Uh, it's, I don't know many people who have this area of strength, but when we talk about eschatology and about the end times, uh, I haven't been there, so I can't tell you authoritatively, but I can tell you this, excuse me, that if you are confused about what happens in the end, if you don't know how these pieces fit together, and if you've been in conversations that you think, I thought I believed this, but now I believe that, but now I used to believe that, but I don't believe that anymore. So if you're in that boat, you are in the right spot. So welcome uh, to a learning community, because we really are struggling to understand what this is all about. But we do so humbly. We do so with a, an eagerness to learn. And, but I bring what Paul says. Remember what Paul said in 4. I don't want you to be ignorant. And likewise, he expected these Thessalonians to learn. Now remember, they're not educated people. They're not readers. They're not people who have books. But he expected them to learn. And he said, everywhere he would go, he would talk about the death and the resurrection of Christ. And with that would come the, the coming of Christ and the, the end of times. And so Paul would have, he says, I want you to learn these things. 
In the same way, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and in the same way, how Christ was risen by the Holy Spirit, you too learn these things. Be, be aware. This is going to happen to you. So don't be ignorant. Don't be unaware. <clears throat> but an interesting little side note in Acts 17 about the Thessalonians, because many of those were not like those in Athens who were philosophers and educators and reflective people. They were more blue-collar, hands-on, manual laborers. So Paul would say, now, Luke would say, now the Berean Jews, that church in Berea, were more of a more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word, the message, with great eagerness, and they examined the scripture. Now, Paul, what are you saying about this? Let's go back to the Old Testament. And so those in Berea would study and examine, but those in Thessalonica were just like, okay, Paul, okay, okay. Um, Paul said, no, there's more than just being passive. You have to be active in your learning. And so as you get into the Bible, whatever you're researching or reading, let me tell you that when you approach the Bible, we don't approach it as though we know what we're doing. <laughs> but we approach it with a sense of having these attitudes that we're prayerfully humble, asking God for wisdom. We're childlike in our faith because that childlikeness explores. They, they're eager. They kind of, how about that? And so we, they look into things. And so, <clears throat> but we do so with the intent, not just to figure out God, but we do so with the intent to follow God. We want to submit to his will. We want to do what he wants us to do. And therefore, we rely on the Holy Spirit. I say we want to be fat people, faithful, available, and teachable, that we can be corrected. <clears throat> and when God says something, I want you to pay attention. He says, okay, Lord, I'm with you to be proactive and doers of the words. But more than anything, we understand that this, this book we esteem, not because we worship the Bible, but we worship the author of the Bible. And that what he has revealed corresponds exactly to the life as he created it. <clears throat> Therefore, when you read the Bible, when you come and you approach this book, realize that there's different ways of reading the Bible. And so let me just mention real quickly, in passing, that there are six ways to intelligently read the Bible. And you do these, you do all of these, different, differently at different times, but you read it literally. There are passages that you have to take serious as literal translations. There are allegorical passages. There are genres that have to do with analogic thinking. And you understand prose and you understand how there are moral teachings and there are parables and there are different things that are historical narratives. When you get into the, the, uh, the books of Moses and, and the narrative of the Jewish nation as they develop. But more than anything, you realize this book is about personal transformation. A development of a community of people who have been touched by this message of the Bible. Now, just a minute, you say. Just a minute. 
you're talking about reading that Bible literally. Well, I don't believe in the rapture because the rapture is not in the Bible, right? Right? You can't believe what's not in the Bible, can you? Can you? Well, <clears throat> neither is the second coming. That's not in the Bible either. Neither is the word Bible, except on the cover. And then uh, the Trinity, responsibility isn't even. English isn't even in there. Jesus didn't speak King James. Neither is purgatory. Neither is Google. Neither is anorexia. Neither is pandemic. There's lots of things. But that doesn't mean it isn't real. So you, just because we say things that are not in the Bible or reading it literally, you don't believe that God is a, is a limestone rock or granite rock, do you? No, he doesn't mean he's a, literally a rock or a tower. There's some symbolisms. So there's a way to read it. So Paul would say to the Thessalonians and to the Ephesians and to Chesilanders, <clears throat> remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, but to slander no one, and here is the part I want you to look at, to be peaceable and considerate, always to be gentle toward everyone. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. So you get this idea that for Paul that when we talk about the Lord, and when we talk about the Bible, when we talk about the end times, we are to do so with a respect, an honor, a sensitivity. And the reason why is because you are a vessel a communicator that reflects Christ. And Paul would say that the goal of our instruction, the goal of our command, what drives us is this love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And therefore, for all of us to know that when we talk about the Bible, <clears throat> it's not just the Bible knowledge. It's not your knowledge of the end times or your doctrine of eschatology. Paul would say, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels that I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and there it comes, and I can fathom all these mysteries and I have all this knowledge and I understand the end times and second coming and rapture, millennial and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And therefore, when we approach this passage today, you understand that there's two bookends that we're starting from. And all the way through, we have to be at this position to say, okay, Lord, I want to worship you from beginning to end. From the beginning of the Bible, it talks about the coming of this one who is going to put his uh, crush the head of Satan. There's one, the seed of, of Adam, that's going to really be the victor. Over, but, so from Genesis 3.15, we have that promise all the way to the end of the Bible that I am coming. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We have these two bookends, starting with his coming and ending with his coming, and that's what we call the Advent 
We're going to do that at Christmas. Advent means to wait, to wait for the Lord, wait for the Lord's Messiah, wait for the Lord's kingdom. But we have these two Advents. And that's what we're trying to do here at Chesterland Baptist. In between these two things, we want to become a biblical church, a kingdom community that takes this message from beginning to end and really tries to understand it in a way that we see that the Lord has called people from all nations. So we want to be Christ-centered. This is to keep this in front of you. What are the five things? What are the five things? Christ-centered, repeat after me, revelational, we believe in the authority of the Bible. We believe in the redemptive work of Christ, that the gospel is about salvation and sanctification, the restoration, that God is at work right now healing and returning us, undoing the thing, the curse of Adam, and rebuilding us into the body that he always wanted. And we do that through relationships. We at Chesterland want to be part of that kingdom, that transforming kingdom that has healing hope, that we say we've got some good news, to be a place where people need to be loved and to be a, and you fill in the blank. Okay. Whew. That was just the introduction. You ready for eschatology? We've talked about two horizons. We talked about two ages, two realms, two endings. We're talking about how different things happen in the timeline where, where we saw from Adam to Abraham and then Christ comes in and from that time of Christ you have an opening of heaven and heaven comes in and brings heaven down to us, and so we know what forgiveness is like. We know what redemption means. We know what the blood of the Lamb uh, on the cross signifies that all that God has promised in the Son is done for us begins when heaven comes down and sends the Holy Spirit. And then we live the Christian life expecting His, waiting for His second coming. And here's where we come into this part of the rapture. Now let me simplify this very, uh, simplify it for me, not for you. I'm going to simplify it for me, but uh, listen in because this is what I think this last section helps me keep it simple. That the grand themes as you move into the rest of Paul's thinking about eschatology, these grand themes are one about the realization of joy. This is the first thing that Paul says. It's always about joy. It's about, about the abundant life. It's about this fullness in Christ. It's about, it's about Christ being everything you want him to be and is for you as you call in his name, as you hallow his name. But the second thing that Paul talks is about this realization or this reckoning of judgment. There is a judgment. And this is not a popular topic. This is more disturbing. It's easier to talk about the first one than the second one. But the reality is that there is a day coming. It is appointed for men to die once. And after that comes a judgment. And these are the two ends. When you end up finding that the third theme is the reign of Christ. And when Christ brings in the kingdom and how, how that all works out, the order of that thing is has been a contentious spot for Christians around the world. But we're going to look at these themes. 
And I'm going to just introduce them briefly and ask you to go home and pick it up and study. And, and, but join with me in this kind of a intriguing discussion because this is going to take place to your body and to your family and to your community. This is, put this on your calendar. It's going to happen. And these are the words you've heard. Apocalypse? You know what apocalypse is? Can you explain that? Can you explain the rapture? Can you explain the second coming? Do you know about the day of the Lord? Have you heard about the tribulation? When was the last time you had a conversation about any of these things? Do you see how far we are from listening? But we're talking about the rapture. And this is where we're going to talk about. Beginning, I'll try to get through this quickly. The apocalypse means the unveiling. It's the uh, revelation and the opening up and so that you clearly see what's going on. And, and it, after Jesus was crucified <clears throat> and was resurrected at the day, uh, at the 10th uh, day, uh, he was, after 40 days, he walked around with his people in the glorified body. But on the, four, on the 40th day, he ascended into heaven. And he said to the disciples, why are you, the angel said, why are you looking at this Jesus who was taken up? He's going to come down the same way. And his, his, he will appear again just the way he went up. And so this idea that, that God is going to appear, realize in present form, in glorified body form one day, is what Revelation is all about. He's coming again in actual physical body. We do not see him now. We've never seen him, but we love him. Because the Spirit of God has poured out in our hearts and has opened up our minds for some reason that you are included in that feast. Why are you a guest? Why are you pursued? Because the Spirit of God has put his hand on your life. And you hear the call of God. And so when you talk about this, this day of the Lord, uh, his appearing, he came once and he's coming a second time. So here's what you need to know about the day of the Lord. We're going to come up in Christmas. Do you know the story about Joseph and Mary? Do you know the story about how in the Jewish custom... Marriage takes place in two stages. Did you know that? Joseph was betrothed to Mary. At what age? When did that happen? Mom and dad, mom and dad get together, and they, they look at this, this, um, this young couple, and they make a marriage vow, a betrothal vow, and Joseph and Mary were considered legally sanctified, set apart for the marriage. And that, that beginning part of marriage is what is done in families, done around th throughout the world. But in the Jewish custom, they set this up. And then after that ceremony, the girl goes back to the family until she is of age and she is ready. <clears throat> she goes back to the family the, the groom goes away and builds a home 
usually next to the father's place or in addition to the room. But he goes away, and when that room is ready, he returns to pick up his bride. And when he comes again the second time for his bride, he brings her up ready to move into his new home. This is the story of John 2, where the wedding ceremony at Cana, they celebrated the coming of the bride. The bridegroom brings the bride home. And so the water was changed into wine. There are two stages to marriage in the Jewish ceremony. Likewise, Jesus came the first time to make the promise to you that he would marry you, betroth you, be your savior. You would trust him, and that's a done deal. And he goes off, as he says in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming again to get you. This return of Christ is the fulfillment and then the consummation of the marriage vows in heaven. So that's the day of the, the day of the Lord has its roots, one in the covenant idea of marriage in the Old Testament. And so here you, here you got the idea of rapture. Rapture is the groom coming for his bride. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? And so it says, Paul says, when the Lord comes, we're going to go to meet the groom. We're going to go to fulfill what he has promised all along. But the idea that the rapture, we're going to meet the Lord in the air, and he's going to come at that second coming when he comes again to bring us home. Now, you should get a little bit confused here. Is the rapture the same thing as the second coming? Or how many times did Jesus come back? Because if I have these questions. It's how my mind works. I go... Uh, I don't know about this one. But the idea, when you think about the rapture and the second coming, you'll hear different interpretations on this one. But let me just share the difference between these two because they're significant. And I just want to get through them real quickly because of time. The rapture, there are 14 things. Not that I'm going to go through all these but I just want you to know the difference. I'll point out real quickly that Jesus comes in the air in the rapture, but in the second coming, his feet touch the ground. Jesus comes to return to gather his saints, like in the marriage, but in the second coming, he returns with the saints. In the rapture, he himself does the gathering. Of course, he's the groom. In the second coming, he uses angels to do the gathering. Believers died or, uh, who died are resurrected and meet Christ in the air, <clears throat> but in the second coming, there is no resurrection. There's a difference here. Believers are depart, uh, depart from the earth, and unbelievers depart from the earth <clears throat> uh, in the second coming. So there's a different movement going on in among the people. Unbelievers will be left behind on the earth in the rapture. And believers will be reigning on the earth. Well, you see the difference. and Different things are happening. But the crazy thing is we don't know the timing or the order. So when you talk about the timing, make sure you understand that nobody understands when that's going to happen. 
The angels don't. Uh, only the Father does. But know this. The, the second coming, the rapture of the second coming, and it comes to this third part, the day of the Lord. This is a passage used 13 times in the Old Testament. But the day of the Lord refers to any day that God is actively involved in human history. And that day specifically is called the day of the Lord when God moves and does his action. In the Old Testament, these are not necessarily good days. There's, there's the other side. Because when God moves, often in the Old Testament, it's a day of trouble. It's a day of rebuke. It's a day of punishment. It's a day of vengeance. It's a day of doom. It's a day of darkness. These are all the day of the Lord. And you understand, here's the judgment side coming in from heaven. Well, there's a lot to this one. I just want to move on. There's going to be a tribulation. And depending on your perspective, the tribulation when God comes and judges the earth in the second coming when he comes back, there are people who think, well, we won't be in the tribulation because Jesus is going to take us out. There are people who say, no, there are people who will be in the tribulation and God will walk with us through it. And then some people say, no, we're going to go through the whole way, all the way through tribulation. And when it's done, we'll go home. There are different versions on that. But the idea is one that this day of the Lord is going to bring about this realization of joy in marriage and a judgment for those who are not at the feast. And the reign of Christ, it's this reign of Christ, this day of the Lord, also has its roots not only in marriage, it has the roots in military warfare. And therefore there's going to be a judgment of evil the things that were taking place that offended, hurt, destroyed people, God's justice will be rolled down because the King of Kings was coming. On the day of the Lord, you will either be in a wedding or you will be in a war. And that's what you need to understand about the second coming and the judgment of Christ. That revelation that you could be in a wedding is the promise that we have good news. Uh, that we offer our hope, that we love his appearing, because when he comes, he's going to call us by name. The king of kings is going to come and call you by name. Or he will come and say, I never knew you. You're not mine. And you'll be left. And therefore, this destruction, this day of the Lord, it implies a nearness and expectation, but we wait for the Lord because the day of the Lord is near. And we live in the land and we tremble because we know that there's going to be a terrible day, an awful day. That why we would be able to be part of that, why we would be able to get in, it's, it's beyond us except it's redeeming grace. And that's why we know that in the kingdom of God, every knee shall bow. Because he is the ultimate authority. And every knee will be bowing before him. But the good news that Paul wanted the Thessalonians to know, it's going to happen to you, and you'll be caught up with him in the air. When you die or if you're alive, this is coming. And so as we move into this next passage, Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware and don't be afraid, but understand what the will of God is. Every knee will bow. As we go into this uh, rest of this passage, the question that 
you have to ask is, well, if that's our hope, what kind of people shall we live, shall we be in light of that hope? And therefore, we will look at that uh, next week with the next passage. And we'll, we will go into Second Thessalonians while we were here, and we'll finish that in the month of November, and then we'll go into uh, uh, Christmas, the Advent season. Well, whew, that's a lot. There's a lot here for you. Uh, if you didn't get it all, that's okay. I'm going to try to get this up on a sheet, and it'll be available for you later on. But, but the exciting thing is, God wants you to be encouraged to have that worship, the fact that God loves you, that, that he has done everything for us to redeem us. And that's why you are invited as a guest to his table. Why? Because he loves you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. How flippant are those words. You just think about all that you've done for us. I pray that you would impress upon us this, this whole message that uh, you would open our eyes and give us grace to see and understand that. Lord, give us the grace to be respectful and effective communicators to those who don't know you because the knee will bow out of marriage and faith and love or the knee will bow out of fear and terror and despair. Lord, again, give us your wisdom in these things. And we praise you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.